This is Dr. Baba Kazizadeh. You are listening to the Smile Podcast, where I will be sharing with you my unique and holistic perspective on beauty, health, and wellness. Hello. <laughs> Millions of people have surgery every year. Or you could just get a boob job. Using targeted Botox can be a miracle. Smiling like that is a skill. Your surgery has been successful. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Smile Podcast. Uh, I'm Dr. Bob Akazizadeh, and today I have the pleasure of having a really, really great friend, Jeff Shell, uh, on with us. Jeff is an amazing human being and just a great person, and you'll learn more about why he is that way today. Um, he is a CEO of NBC Universal, and um, he recently had you know, an experience with having COVID. So today we're going to talk about that experience and I want to welcome him to the podcast. Thank you, Bob. And you're biased, obviously, when you say nice things about me because we've known each other for a long time. So nobody should take that. No, no, no. You are, you're, you're just a great (laughs) human being, seriously. And, you know, people, I think, you know, part of the podcast process was kind of just getting to know people and I think, um, you know, it's not like a one minute snippet of information. So I'm glad. By the way, it's something you don't know, Bob, but our daughters are friends, but my daughter cut my hair. So if you like my oh, hair. Oh, that's cool. Yes. I, 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 you know, I had three people cutting my hair at the same time, <laughs> Jessica and her sister and her mom for a while, but good, good. So I know, I mean, you were the first, I think, major business figure and CEO of a major company that just came out swinging, sending an email to your staff saying that you had COVID. So first, I want to kind of get kind of what happened. How, how, how did you feel? What was the experience of having coronavirus? And then I'd like to know what kind of made you do that? Because I know there was a lot of initially, not so much now, but initially there was a lot of stigma attached to having the coronavirus and you were just like, you know, just out in the open. And I thought it was amazing. Yep. So I was, uh, I got my job as CEO January one, which feels like 15 years ago. Um, and, uh, I, because I had been running all the businesses in Los Angeles, most of the businesses that I didn't know were in New York. So I was pretty much commuting, um, every Sunday or Monday to New York and, and coming back on, Thursday or Friday, or in some cases, Saturday. Um, and, uh, and I, uh, on March uh, 12th, which was a Thursday, I flew back from New York uh, to LA um, after a full day of meetings, flew back at night, um, had a full day of meetings in the office on, on Friday the 13th. Um, Friday the 13th, by the way. Okay. Uh, that night, uh, that night, I had a little, it wasn't really a cough. It was more of like a, uh, like almost like you have something stuck in your windpipe or your throat, like a little tickle, um, which I, of course, completely ignored and said, that's nothing. It'll be gone tomorrow morning. Woke up on Saturday morning. It was still there, but I felt fine. Didn't tell anybody. And then Sunday morning, I woke up and I didn't feel right. And uh, I had chills. And I felt worse all day. And I finally took my temperature and it was 102. And at that point, I moved into the guest room of our house with the guest bathroom and the laundry room and didn't come out, literally didn't come out for almost two weeks. Um, I had the weirdest part. I, I would say this was the sickest I've ever been. I've never been sicker than this. It's, it, I had had the flu before. The flu's bad. This was way worse for me anyway than the flu. 
Um, I, the, the weirdest thing about it, I'll give you the three things that were particularly bad about it. The first thing is the fever never goes away. So, so I had never experienced something where you don't take Tylenol and it doesn't break for like a couple hours and then come back again. This, you would take Tylenol and it was impregnable. It would just literally not, you know, fever wouldn't change. It was in a band from like 100 to 102, never that high, but never went away. Day and night, nonstop for 11 days. I had a fever for 11 days. It didn't break. Um, second thing is, and I've talked to a lot of people who've had it, and uh, this is kind of a common theme. You have this kind of uh, lethargicness. You know, Bob, you know me. I'm pretty energetic. Um, High just energy. everything is a battle. Um, it, you know, getting up out of bed was a battle. Brushing my teeth, I had to stop in the middle. Like everything oh was rough. Um, and then I think uh, the third thing is it went on for two weeks and the second week was actually worse than the first, which I think you hear from a lot of people. Um, I don't know whether it's just your body's been sapped. I lost 16 pounds. It doesn't look like it's because I've gained it all back now. But um, I, I, uh, I, the second week was just every day, like any illness, you expect to wake up in the morning and feel better and you don't, you feel worse. And it gets to be, um, it gets to be kind of from a psychological standpoint, just awful. Um, and uh, I only had one scary day. I woke up maybe day 10 or day nine and my chest was congested, which my doctor had said, if that doesn't happen, you're good. And then I woke up and it was almost like I grew up in Los Angeles, those old days where you had smog breathing yeah. in the smog, you deep, just breathe deeply, which got worse over the course of the day. And so I went to, uh, get my chest x-rayed at Cedars that, that night. Um, and that was the scariest moment. I thought like, is Laura going to be driving home on her own? from the hospital. She, she drove me with a mask, but a couple of days I didn't, my chest was largely clear. A couple, couple spots were largely clear and, and, uh, felt bad the next day. And then the next day after that started feeling better. And then my fever broke and my headache, I had a headache for two weeks that went away. And then one day I just, that, that lethargicness kind of stayed with me, stayed with me, slowly faded. And then one morning I woke up and I felt normal. I have not, I did not lose my taste of my sense of taste or smell. Oh, wow. Um, I, my sister, who actually flew with me back from New York on the, on the 12th, got it too. Um, she's the only person I know that got it. Um, I don't know to this day who gave it to me, whether I got it in the subway or in the gym or something like that. Um, nobody who I was in a meeting with on Thursday or Friday got it. My wife and my daughter, who were convinced they got it, did not get it. Um, We've all been tested so for antibodies and all that stuff. And so it's just a bizarre thing. You hear, you think if I pass somebody without a mask, I'm going to get it and die. And it's just, I think a little bit more random. You're the doctor, but I think it's a little bit more random than that. Um, my, uh, my, um, and I haven't had any residual symptoms. I had, uh, for a couple of weeks after I got better, I had a ringing once a day in one of my ears. It would switch ears. That was a little weird, but that went away after a couple of weeks. And I have to say, I feel great. Like I felt great for the last two months. I have all my energy back. I'm a hundred percent and have been for a couple of months. Um, I didn't, so I, I got tested. I got sick. I got my fever on a Sunday morning. I went into UCLA and got a UCLA test on Monday and it took nine days to get a result. So you didn't even test. know if you were positive. No, my doctor's like, you have it. Of course you have it. Um, but, but you don't know. And that was a little scary. And I, so I didn't, um, go public actually to my company until, um, until I got the test back. And when I got the test back, I didn't know whether it would be public to the CDC or what, what the process. And I also was new to the company. So I felt like people don't know me. 
Um, I might as well share my experience. People were so afraid of this. Um, as you said, there was such a stigma that I felt like, you know, it's what a good way to introduce myself. And, and, and uh, people are wondering why I'm not on Zoom calls for the last two weeks and why I've seemed to disappear. Um, you know, this is why. Um, coincidentally, I run one of the three big divisions at Comcast. I run NBC Universal, Comcast Cable, which is the biggest of our divisions. A guy named Dave Watson also got it and has now gone public that he had it almost the same time as me and we weren't together. So it's a very random, random uh, thing. So anyway, that's the, uh, my wife. And then we got antibody tests. Um, I t tested positive. My wife and daughter tested negative. Got a second one with my wife because she was once again convinced it was wrong. She was negative. I was positive. So I got antibodies and I feel a bit like Superman. Yeah, I know. Like now you have the passport. <laughs> you have the immunity passport. That's no, like only people like you could tell me how long. My doctor says minimum three months, but nobody really knows, right? So until they do research, you don't know how long you're going to be immune, right? Yeah, you know, I actually did a podcast with an expert about that. And her thoughts were that it really depends on how strong your response was. Some people's response is very low and they don't get a really super high immunity. But I, she thought that if you get a super, super high immunity and if you got a recent antibody test, you've been positive for two, two months. And I had a super I, high amount of antibodies. Both the antibody tests were very high concentrations. Yeah, I, yeah, I think you're going to be good for a while. You're, you're, you're going to be good. You're going to be, you know, the uh, truly Superman with this process. Um, so you have, what did you guys do by the way at home from a quarantine standpoint? We were pretty good. Actually. We, we have, we have a good situation at home where we have a guest room. It oh, has a bathroom. Area, yeah. And then there's a laundry room in between that and the regular house. So I could do all my own laundry with the door closed, then close the door to the laundry room and my family could do the laundry. So the laundry room was the point of infection, really. We just were, we were good about cleaning surfaces in there and everything. And obviously my wife gave me food and everything like that. We were less careful the second week. I was getting pretty depressed. And so my wife actually came in a couple of times the second week. But we, for the first week, we were pretty good. But I was asymptomatic for how long, right? And my sister got it. And so there's some question whether my sister gave it to me, but that's a family issue. We'll, yeah, we'll, but we won't get into that. Yeah. I don't wanna... <laughs> but the mental wellness part of it, I find, I don't know what your thoughts are, but I really find big, big issues, both for people who are getting it. They're alone. No one can go into the hospital. I mean, people who are hospitalized, I feel for them. I mean, they're like very few hospitals allow anybody to go in. And then like you, even though you were home for a couple of weeks, you're like, you know, you go really stir crazy. And then for people who don't have it and are quarantining, I feel like our kids age, they're like going berserk. So it's I think it's a big, I think it's a big issue. And I can't even imagine, you know, I would say I, I tell people I had a medium, I was really sick, but I didn't go to the hospital. I can't even imagine being in the hospital by yourself with no contact. I, the thing that was tough. I'm a very much action oriented person. Like you tell me, okay, we got a problem. What are the options to fix it? And I'll choose an option and we'll pick it. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Nobody can tell you what to do. Like, it's the most amazing thing ever. It's like, you have a sickness, you call your doctor and you say, what should I take? What should I do? She's like, I don't know. You know, like the president's sake says, take Plaquenil. Okay. You can take Plaquenil if you want. Right. Um, and so that to me was for me, um, the worst part was every, and by the way, you're not just stir crazy. You feel awful. So 
you wake up every day and you just feel terrible and nobody can tell you what to do to feel better. You take Tylenol and your headache doesn't go away and your fever doesn't go away. And what's the answer? Well, I don't know. No answer. So I think that is a- you probably not, not to take non-steroidals like Advil and so forth, which could have helped potentially, but no one knew if they were good or bad at that time. Yeah, because right. That's so how everyone was like, oh my God, it's the non-steroidals that are getting people sick. Right. And I was sick during that time. So Excedrin yeah. is a thing that would normally, I'd normally take for a headache. I couldn't take those because it was aspirin, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. Wow. So, you know, you, you obviously are leading, you know, so many subsidiaries and, you know, you have so many things you're juggling. But one of the things I also find fascinating that not a, we haven't spoken enough about, obviously, doctors and nurses and you know, researchers, we've been talking a lot about them. But one of the things that I feel like we haven't spoken a lot about is the news people. And you guys run, you have multiple divisions, news divisions, and I feel like we haven't given them enough credit. They are out in literally, I feel like in the front lines, talking and bringing us information and trying to get obviously as much information. How have you guys managed, you know, your news divisions and what are your thoughts about that? Because I feel like it's just not, hasn't been talked enough about. Well, so we have about, um, until we started going back a couple of weeks ago, we have, I think, uh, a total of around 67,000 employees. And I think at our peak, we had 65,000 or something like that who were working from home, which is extraordinary, by the way. <laughs> of the 2,000 who weren't working from home, the vast majority of those were people associated with the news, right? So... So you have some tech op people and some post-production people, but mainly news people. So when I got antibodies and I got better, one of the first things I did was I went into KMBC here in Los Angeles and I thanked the folks there in Telemundo. And then I got on a plane and I went to New York to thank everybody at 30 Rock. And I do think, you know, they're not, they're not the, the nurses and doctors. They're not, you know, they're not the, you know, they're not on the front line, front line, but they are on a version of the front line. And I couldn't be more proud of our company has done it. And by the way, and then you got that pivoting to all the unrest of the last week and a half and the death of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. And, you know, and we are and many people, you know, I, I, I tend to think about my mother. My mother is, uh, you know, late 70s, rheumatoid arthritis, sealed in her apartment. Um, she's at risk. She's not going outside. NBC News is literally her lifeline to the outside world. We're the ones that provide her with the information day and night, whether, you know, whether it's at night screaming at the TV with Rachel Maddow or whether it's a day watching local news, you know, it is, um, it is a true, we view that part of our company really, really as a public service. It is a beating heart of NBC. Um, And, uh, and I couldn't be more proud. One thing I will say in particular was, um, there's a woman by the name of Kate Snow, who's one of our correspondents, um, who fill, you know, does weekend anchor and she, her husband got sick right around the same time I got sick and, uh, her reporting on how, uh, she was dealing with it was really helpful to my wife. And, um, and they actually talked, you know, because it's not just people getting sick. It's the people Families. you can't go in the room, your, your relatives in the hospital, you know, you can't say goodbye to a elderly relative in a nursing home, my best friend lost his dad during all this and 10 people at a funeral, social distance. I mean, it's just awful, right? Um, so I actually think our news people have been doing just an extraordinary job and uh, really proud, really proud of, of, of them and not just NBC, but Telemundo as well. That's amazing. 
That's amazing. And I know you made a lot of them available, a lot of the news outlets available for free so that people can, can get that. So that's an amazing yeah, yeah. Public, yeah. public service. Now, um, you have, okay, I'm a physician, so I'm now curious what, you know, theme parks are opening now in Asia. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. Uh, hopefully, we're in Los Angeles. We want the entertainment industry to get back to work because there are a lot of people who, you know, their livelihood depends on it. What are you guys doing to resume kind of normal operations um, for your 65,000 employees that have not yet gone back to work? Well, I have a I have a viewpoint on this, which uh, which is somewhat controversial, and I will acknowledge acknowledge that when I say this. But if you actually, you know, there's no question, COVID, the pandemic is is awful and dreadful, and and it's affecting lots of people's lives. But it's affecting people's lives in very different ways, right? The if you were in New York City, the odds that you know somebody who has it, let alone died from it, are very high. If you're in rural Wyoming, the odds that you know somebody that has it are infinitesimal. Um, if you are uh, elderly with a pre-existing condition, you get this, you're in big trouble. You know, you're the physician, but if you're a 28-year-old oh, right. fit kid that gets it, you're pretty good shape. You probably are not going to the hospital if you do. It's you're rare. Okay. It's going to be very rare. It's very rare. So I think that the economic effects that are happening are catastrophic. You know, we we have, you know, we've exploded our deficit or, you know, here in California, we went from a $40 billion surplus to a $50 billion deficit, that's going to have huge ramifications for public education and public health. And that's happening everywhere across the globe. And so I feel very strongly that we need to get our economy going and we need to get people back to work. We at our company chose not to furlough our theme park employees. So we have about 28,000 theme park employees, 29,000. Disney th furloughed all of their employees right away, um, which means they get no pay, but they're, they get their benefits. To me, those are our people that are the most vulnerable, who make the least money, and who have been loyal to our company. But my bosses are like, okay, so what's the plan? If you're closed for five years, you know, you can't just, you know, not furlough. So, so we have been working very hard to try to figure out if we can open up some of these businesses safely. Um, the first guys who actually did it were Disney in Shanghai. Shanghai is a little bit different because everybody has a phone that tells where you are at all times of and day and night. Positive, and, negative, all of that. Yeah. yeah, and they could let people in or whatever. But we, we opened up our park in Florida last week, our theme park in Florida last week. That was a, the culmination of a, actually a long process. And it's a very complicated process, by the way, as a physician. It's not, okay, here, the number ends up being 35%. We can get in um, to, to our capacity, but it's much more scientific. There's some rides where you can easily social distance because each party's in a different car and you're not yeah. close to each other. There's some rides that you just can't open at all because the way they queue and everything, it's just impossible to keep people apart. So we, and then you have to actually take a step back and say, okay, I've opened these rides and not these. What about these bathrooms? And you no, know, you can't have everybody go in the bathroom at the same time. The logistics and, are crazy. Yeah, so, so we were able to open up with a bunch of things. We take every, so, so you asked about testing, I, I believe. Our original plan was to try to test. What we found is that, um, that the amount of tests available are grossly exaggerated. You can't get a lot of tests. And the turnaround times, there's no such thing as this 15-minute test. It takes, you know, it takes some time. So logistically, we were even going to just test our employees 
and that wasn't even logistically possible in Florida. So what we've gone to instead is um, a temperature checking. We temperature check everybody who comes in to our hotel. We opened up our hotels, by the way, too. You can't get in if you have a temperature. Your party can't get in if you have a temperature. We have not done testing. Now, separately, we just got the state to approve this global settlement amongst all the studios and the unions of how to start producing movies and TV shows again, which is the lifeblood of our company. And uh, if there are two actors who are going to kiss on the set or be intimate, then we're going to test them, right? So we are going to use tests for, for that, but we're going to produce, you know, we have policies to produce in a way that's social distance and it varies by municipality. And I actually think, you know, a lot of the, the, a lot of the state and local, everybody got off to a very slow start. This was like a boulder coming down the hill at you and nobody knew it was happening, right? Wow. Once people started figuring out what was happening, I think with, with some exceptions, most people in the state and local governments have worked really well to try to figure out ways to get our businesses open. Um, and uh, that's certainly true on production, where the unions have been quite helpful, actually, and, and in the theme park. So slowly but surely, and then, and then the minute we get everything open, then we got to start preparing for the fall surge and see what happens if we get to fall and there's another surge, and what do we do? Yeah. And by the way, as a phys- I know you're coming from you know, because you understand the economics and the macroeconomics of the world. And, but as a, from a physician perspective, I completely agree with your, um, your perspective, because I feel like at some point, the damage to wellness, mental wellness, physical wellness, people weren't getting their colonoscopies. People were scared to go to the ER to, they were having heart attacks or they're, they're so scared to go to the ER, not having the financials, losing your health insurance, the economic uh, pressure from the local states, national. I think at some point kind of that balance has been now shifted. So I agree. I think, I think you know, they're now and we know more right now. You know, one of my friends, one of my colleagues, he's a doctor. He saw a patient. And the patient ended up being super positive, like, like got sick. But look, he went and got tested. He got tested again a week later. He didn't see people. So now we do have access to testing. So if someone, let's say, on the, in the studio gets sick, you can quickly get them tested, know within a day what's going on, let those people know. So th- we can control the situation a lot better and, and than I think- before. Yeah, one point I'll make, Bob, you what you said is is the whole interplay between people like you, physicians, and and people like me, layman, normal people, is about risks and about then dealing with what happens when a risk, um, you know, when when a risk gets taken. I I had a very difficult and testy conversation with a with a uh, a health officer who will go unnamed, who said, "I'm going to listen to the science," and I'm like, you know, what does that mean? Like. If you listen to the science, lower the speed limit to 20, 20 miles per hour. We go in a car every day, and if we go over 20 miles an hour, we're taking a risk. So you have to balance things out, and I think this is going to be all about finding the risk, and we're going to make mistakes along yeah. the way. People are going to – these protests, we'll see what happens, right? We're going to make mistakes, and it's all about finding the balance in your life between the risk that you're taking and hopefully um, – you know, I'm not sure if you're a you know, 75-year-old woman like my mom, you should go out they in should. society, right? But yeah. You know, if you're my 17-year-old daughter, you know. But even my faith, but, my know. mom, who's 75, she's a hairdresser, okay? <laughs> and she sees like maybe three clients a day, and she went back to work. 
She's like, no way, I'm going. I can't like stay. And my dad, who's 83. Don't show her this, this video. Yeah, you need, yeah I, that's where I get my haircuts from normally. My dad, who's 83, who basically drives her to work and hangs out with her, then goes and does some, you know, goes to downtown, does some stuff. He People got to live their lives. He, People got to live their lives and take They went rogue. My parents went rogue. I told them, look, stay home, relax, don't do anything. But, you know. And I think that's, um, we're at that kind of point. And I think the science, to be honest with you, if you talk to the people who are at the really treating, they, they made a lot of mistakes at the beginning with the ventilators, with what they were doing with the ventilators, with, um, there are a lot of technical aspects of it that's beyond kind of- they didn't, But they didn't know, right? It was yeah, an They didn't know. They're like, oh, we got to, like, there's this thing called PEEP. Oh, we got to do high PEEP. But guess what? They actually had to do low PEEP. They didn't know. So people actually weren't getting the correct. Now, I think with the three, four months of experience and uh, as, you know, we get closer and closer to understanding, look, what do you need to do? Hopefully, hopefully the really, the low percentage of patients who actually get really sick will also be able to be managed better. And hopefully the overall mortality rate won't be as high as we, we thought it would be. But we'll see, like you said. Yeah, and, the, and the bottom line is there's no winners because what's going to happen is we're going to go back to work. We're going to go back to business. People are going to go back to school and people are going to get sick and die. And the people who get sick and die and their relatives and their loved ones are going to say that was a stupid mistake. Why did we do that? And if not a lot of them die and you didn't have a loved one who died, you're going to say, this is it. Why don't we tank our whole economy? This was yeah. dumb. And so you're never, it's one of these things. It's a great unknown. You're never going to know what the right answer is. And all you can do is live from it and make the best decisions you can right with now, the taking the risk, right? Yeah. No, I mean, and I think with our, what we have available to make those decisions with the information we have. And I agree with you a hundred percent. Well, I don't want to take up more of your time. I'm sure you have like 50 Zoom calls the rest of the <laughs> afternoon. And Unfortunately, I yes. really, really, really appreciate your time. I know you're so busy and um, uh, this is really, really wonderful. Well, I miss you. I miss you and your family. Know, please, we, please. we have to definitely get together for our meals and, you know, <laughs> glass of wine <laughs> all too, when all of this is kind of mellowed out. So Perfect. My best. Tell Jess again, the family, I say hello and thank you for having me on. All right, Jeff. Have a good one. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.